Well, this morning, I, I want to call upon Sir Isaac Newton. You see his picture up there in a second. To help us understand what God had in mind when he used the word worship. You remember back in the 1600s, it was Newton who identified the laws of motion. Do you remember the first law of motion? You studied it in your high school physics class. An object in motion will remain in motion until acted upon by some outside force. So what does that have to do with worship? Well, you you and I live lives of motion. You've been in motion all week. Several hours ago, this entire room was empty with people. Now it's filled. And when you leave here, your motion will continue. Did you know your motion over time determines the trajectory of your life? Now, worship is where God, an outside force, intersects our lives and changes its trajectory. Now, when I talk about worship, uh, I'm not talking about what happens for 30 minutes once a week. I'm, I'm not talking about religion or liturgy or music, for that matter. Worship is not singing, although it can include singing. Uh, Simply put, worship is my response to God. And when I respond to Him, when I talk to Him, uh, when I reflect on Him, when I engage Him through the events of my life, well, that's worship. And it opens a door for God to intersect my life and begin changing its trajectory. Remember, an object in motion, it'll remain in motion until acted upon by some outside source. Worship is my response to God through the events of my life that allows Him to intersect my life and begin changing its trajectory. Did you know every person within the sound of my voice right now is a worshiper. You and I were hardwired to worship. I mean, the question is, what or who we worship? Now, to understand what I'm getting at, you'll need to turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4 in your Bibles. And in verse 19, you'll discover Jesus is in the midst of the ultimate water cooler conversation. He's talking to a woman. It's the woman at the well. Follow along as I read, beginning verse 19. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. But the hour has come... And now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. 
Now, this woman has been in motion. I mean, she's been actively pursuing what she thought would bring fulfillment in her life. And the futility of her pursuit can be seen in the fact that she's had five failed marriages. Remember I said that we're all hardwired to worship. It just depends on what or who we worship. We tend to worship those things we think bring us fulfillment in life. And so Jesus gets disturbingly personal with this woman. He reminds her that she's not only had five husbands, but the man she's living with now is not her husband. Well, this woman does what any person would do when engaged in an uncomfortable conversation, try to change the subject. So she brings up a topic of interest between Jews and Samaritans. She brings up the subject of worship. Notice what she says. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. But, But instead of changing the subject, she unknowingly takes the conversation in the direction Jesus wanted it to go, back to the root of her longing for fulfillment, which is really her longing for worship. You see, Jesus understood that worship is far more than attending worship service once a week. I mean, notice what he says. The hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Worship is far more encompassing than the songs we sing. Worship allows God to begin to reorient us toward the trajectory He originally intended for us. I mean, notice Jesus says, but... but The hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. I mean, what does Jesus mean by true worshipers? Worship in spirit and in truth. Did you know worship is one of the reasons you were given breath to live this morning? I mean, the psalmist says, everything that has breath, praise the Lord. To to understand Worship, we've, to understand why we've been given breath, we, we've got to get our arms around worship and get an understanding of that. So let's start with a, a definition. You'll see it on the screen. Worship is my active, all of life response to the worth of who God is and what He does. I mean, notice, first of all, Uh, that worship is active. In other words, it's not passive. It's not a matter of me watching people on stage worship. Uh, Worship is not someone doing something for me. I mean, that's consumerism. But worship is me actively and purposely doing something. And worship is not for an hour on Sunday morning. Worship is actually being amazed 24 hours a day, seven days a week, living a life of engagement with God. It's not a small compartmentalized part of my life. So worship is active, but it's also all-of-life response. It's an all-of-life response. 
Several weeks ago, I was watching CBS News when they reported on the miracle in Arkansas. Uh, A woman was returning home from Thanksgiving, she and her eight-month-old little girl, when they were involved in an automobile accident with a semi-truck. The the truck hit their car in such a way that it flipped it completely over. And when it did, this little eight-month-old girl was launched from the car. The car was completely totaled. You can see in the picture on the screen. The woman survived because she had her seatbelt on, but no one could find her eight-month-old daughter. The police, the first responders, the rescuers, good Samaritans searched the median of the interstate back and forth. They looked everywhere. For over an hour they looked For this little girl, no one could find her. When one of the rescuers happened to kick back a tuft of grass that was covering a storm drain. And when he did, he thought he saw some movement. He he shined his flashlight down into the drain. And there she was like this with her hands up. As if to say, well, then you can pick me up. They got her out from the storm drain, squeezed her between the bars, and she didn't have a scratch on her. Uh, They called it a Thanksgiving miracle. I mean, the newscasters, the first responders, the policemen were just amazed. Now, I was kind of surprised that a major network would mention the name of God on their newscast, let alone attribute a miracle to Him. I mean, I, I looked at my screen and I thought, who, who are you and what did you do with CBS News? Now, I think if you were to ask Scott Pelley, you know, why did you mention God in that piece? He would probably answer, well, we think it's appropriate to mention God at a time like this. Implication is that there are other times when it's not appropriate to bring God into the picture. Now, before I get too hard on Scott Pelley, I've wondered if the angels in heaven have the same response to us. We feel like worship has to take place at a certain place in a certain time. I wonder if they want to tap on the screen and go, Well, when is worship inappropriate? You see, worship is my active, all-of-life engagement with God. In other words, it's not a part of my life. It encompasses all of my life. It's 24-7. So that means it must include church, work, play, When I'm overcome with grief, when I'm in the midst of celebration, when I'm running errands, when I'm in the middle of crisis. So worship is my active, all of life, third response. Worship is actually a response. You see, you and I are not the initiators here. I didn't decide to be born. I didn't determine who my parents would be, what country I would live in. None of that was my doing. I I mean, we're not, you and I are not the potter. We're the clay. I'm not the one in charge of the electrical current that keeps my heart beating. 
every second of every day for my entire life. So my life ought to be lived in response to the one who is in charge. And that response, well, it's worship. So it's active, meaning not passive. It's all of life, meaning it's not compartmentalized. Uh, it's a response to the worth of God. Did you know our English word worship comes from an old Anglo-Saxon term, worthship? Worship is all about worth, what you value in life. In fact, you see it every day. Every weekend especially. When the guy paints his face the color of his favorite team, he goes to the ball game and he's screaming and yelling, rooting his team on to a victory. You see it in the executive who is investing, you know, 50, 60, 70 hours a week, ignoring the impact he's having on his wife, his family, on his own psyche, trying to achieve more and more success. Remember I said we're all hardwired to worship? We all have things we consider worthy of our devotion, things we set above everything else in life. It may be your kids, your grandkids, your finances. It may be your comfort. It could be your possessions, your reputation, your success. I mean, what is it that belongs in the center of our lives? Well, worship is my active, all-of-life response to the worth of who God is and what He does. In fact, the psalmist in Psalm 145 says this. Here's what David says. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is is unsearchable. Did you know God's greatness uh, comprises who He is and what He does? And the psalmist goes on. He says, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger, great in mercy. The Lord is good to all, and His tender mercies are over all His works. Notice David says that God, well, He's gracious, full of compassion, and great in mercy. That's who He is. But he also says he's slow to anger and good to all. That's what he does. And those who understand the value of engaging with God's worth begin to see life as the adventure God made it to be. Johann Sebastian Bach saw life that way. He understood that worship was not something that takes place at a certain time in a certain place. He, he understood that worship was my active, all-of-life pursuit. Now, he saw God as a partner in his compositions. I mean, so much so that at the end of every masterpiece, he wrote these words in Latin. Solo Deo Gloria. To the glory of God alone. 
And see, he understood that this life is not about me. It's not about me uh, furthering my success. In fact, my work could actually be worship. You see, it's recognizing that what I have is due to him. It's acknowledging his worth. It's God's worth. So when I come to the end of my day, Can I write solo Deo Gloria at the end of this day? Or am, if I'm honest, do I have to write, this day has been about me? You see, everything we do in life, from our tears to our laughter, engaged in competition, or entertaining a client, whether I'm alone or I'm with friends, every action, every breath is an acknowledgement of the greatness of God, which is His worth. In fact, I want you to do something for me right now. I want you to close your eyes. Just close your eyes. And with your eyes closed, I want you to imagine you've got a pen or a pencil in your hand. In fact, if you would, with your eyes closed, Take your fingers like you're holding that pen and apply enough pressure so you can feel it, okay? Now, as you're doing that, I I want you to think back over this week. Can you write over this week, solo, Deo, Gloria, to the glory of God alone? Now, with your eyes shut, I want you to keep that posture, keep the pressure on your fingers, and I want to give you a few minutes to engage with the one who's given you life, to talk to him about his worth. As I pray for you and the band begins to play over you, Lord, Will you help us to reorient our lives in a way that acknowledges your worth? And may we begin to engage with you in a way that maybe we never have before. And live out worship as an active, all-of-life response so that at the end of each day, We can write over it solo, Deo, glory. The glory to you alone. Would you begin engaging with the one who gave you life? So what does it look like? To worship 24-7. Well, Jesus' words to this woman at the well reveal a threefold response. I mean, it involves three particular areas, all of which are necessary, none of which uh, can be left out if my response is going to be appropriate. Remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well? He says, true worshipers, 
Worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The first response to God in worship is a response of recognition. In other words, it's recognizing the truth of who God is and what He does with my mind. I mean, worship is not a matter of entertainment. It's, it's an issue of engaging my mind. It's not an issue of the amusement that our culture is so addicted to. Did you know the root word of the word amusement is the word muse? It means to think. The prefix a uh, is added as a negation. Amusement means not to think. And if we're not careful, we bring that addiction into our worship and our relationship with God, and we stop engaging our minds. Do you remember what Jesus said to the scribe when he asked, well, what is the greatest commandment? Well, in Mark 12... He said this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your what? Your mind. Your mind. It means engaging with our minds regarding who God is. It means recognizing the truth of God's Word and what it reveals about Him. I mean, biblical worship is Word-centered. It's truth-centered. It's knowing the truth about God and allowing that truth from His Word to capture our attention. In fact, in Psalm 103, David begins this way. He says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. When Scripture speaks of God's name, it's speaking of His greatness. It's the greatness of who He is and what He does. That's what is mentioned when he says God's name. David continues, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your disease, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercy, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Can you see what David's doing here in the psalm? He is engaging his mind with who God is and what God does. I want us to take another moment to recognize with our mind who God is and what He's done. In fact, as the band sings over you, plays over you, I want you to reflect on what you know about God from the Scripture. And maybe what you've learned about Him from creation. Would you spend a few moments engaging with Him? So when I began to recognize the worth of God with my mind, when I began superimposing who He is and what He does over who I am and what I need, a second response comes into the picture. In fact, Jesus spoke of this response when He answered the scribe who asked Him, what is the greatest commandment? Remember how Jesus answered? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, as well as your mind. You see, true worship involves a heart 
soul engagement. You see, worship involves my mind recognizing who God is and what He does, but it also involves my heart resonating with who God is and what He does. And when I say resonating, I'm talking about engaging with its relevance to me, its impact on me. Remember what Jesus told the woman at the well? True worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. Now, the word spirit used there by Jesus does not refer to the Holy Spirit. It refers to our spirit. You see, Samaritan worship evolved out of the emotionalism of idol worship. Uh, when Israel split into the northern and southern king kingdoms, the, the northern kingdom was overrun by the Assyrians. They intermarried with them. They lost their Jewish identity and never again returned to a wholehearted embrace of the Scripture, the truth. So their worship was not based upon truth. Uh, but Jewish worship, well, they upheld the truth. The southern kingdom engaged with the truth of what God says in His Word, but sadly, their heart was not in it. Do you remember how Jesus answered the Pharisees and how He described them in uh, Mark 7? He says, This people... Honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In other words, they're recognizing me with their mind, but their hearts are not resonating with me. And so he sadly concludes, in vain they worship me. But when was the last time you sat still long enough, not just to recognize God's worth with your mind, but allow it to resonate in your heart. Some time ago, I was looking for a way to allow Psalm 139 uh, to not just engage my mind, but also my heart. I came to verse 17 or 16. And it said... How precious are your thoughts toward me, O God? How great are the sum of them? If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. At the time, I happened to be standing on a beach, and so I decided to just pick up a little handful of sand. And then I began separating out one grain at a time. And with each grain, I would try to recall one of God's thoughts toward me. So I separated out the first grain. I was reminded of Psalm 37, where it says, God delights in me. And then I separated out a second grain. I was reminded of Zephaniah 3, where it says, He rejoices over me with singing. A third reminded me of 1 Peter 5, where it says, He cares for me. Another one, Romans 8, where it says, Nothing can separate me from the love of God. And another, and another, and another, until I had separated out anywhere between 20 and 30 grains of sand. And then I was kind of at a loss. What would... I don't have another creative thought. What else do I know? 
And then I looked at the pile of sand remaining in my hand. And beyond that, I looked at the beach and saw how far it ran. And I began to weep and worship. My heart was resonating. How precious are your thoughts toward me? How vast are the sum of them? If I should count them, they would outnumber the sands of the sea. And my heart began resonating with what God must think of me. When was the last time you paused long enough to allow God's Word to resonate with your heart? You know, I think it's appropriate for us to take a few minutes to pause and allow God's Word to engage our hearts. And to help you in that, you can take out this little sheet I've given you of how God thinks about you. As the band plays over you, use this time to reflect on what is here and engage your heart with God and what He thinks. Rhythm of recognizing with my mind and resonating with my heart begins to take place. A third response comes into play that's actually rooted in the very word Jesus uses here with the woman in the well for worship. You know, in the Greek language, there are several words for worship that we translate into our English word, worship. Uh, the word here is proskuneo. It means to kiss the hand. Other words elsewhere in the New Testament mean to bow down, uh, to serve, to jump, to kneel, to lay prostrate. Well, what's interesting is you look at all of them in a group, almost every one of them describes a bodily posture. So I'm not just to recognize with my mind and resonate with my heart. But I am supposed to resonate with the truth of who God is and what He does with my body. I am to react with my body. You see, my worship is not really something that's subconscious, that no one can see. It's visible because it's demonstrated in my body. Uh, It's a part of my body's posture. A part of my body's actions. In other words, it's something you see as I engage my body and how I love people, serve others, relate to my employer, or engage my friends. It can be seen in my body. Remember how Jesus answered the scribe who asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your what? Heart and soul, that's resonating, with all your mind, that's recognizing, and with all your might, that is reacting. So it has to do with the way I engage with life, 
with my body, the way I spend my days, the way I use my money, the way I engage my abilities, the way I invest my time, the way you relate to your employees, that's worship. The way I respond to my employer, that's worship. How I engage with people, love my friends, talk to my neighbors. Do you see it? It's all worship. In fact, that's why Paul said in Romans 12:1 these words. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. That word service there is the Greek word latreo, which means to worship. It should be translated uh, your reasonable worship, or even better, reasonable service of worship. So I think it's appropriate, again, to pause for a few moments. And I want you to close your eyes and reflect on who God is and what He does. But this time, I want you to change your body's posture. I don't care what. Maybe if you've been sitting there with your your hands clenched, maybe you open them toward God. Or maybe... You turn around and kneel at your pew. Or you might feel the need to stand or raise your hands. I mean, whatever it is, change your body's posture in some way uh, as an awareness that worship involves not only my mind and recognizing, not only my heart and resonating, but it involves my body in reacting to who God is and what He does. Lord, you are changing our trajectories this morning. And we've been in motion all week. But we've been acted upon by an outside force. I mean, incredibly, you, the King of creation, is seeking our engagement. You desire our worship. 